Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're very excited to be talking with Jason Dole. Jason is currently the CTO at Worldbook. Jason's background is more in, you know, the startup culture, being a results-driven team leader, you know, more of an agile software development uh, perspective, you know, things from, from gathering requirements to launch. He spent many, many years in team building and structuring and experience with in-house software, hardware development, local and remote and outsourced teams. Um, we're really excited about having him on the show today. So, Jason, welcome. Thank you, Patrick. It's a privilege to be here. Yeah, you know, you know, as we were talking before uh, we started uh, the episode here, you know, we talked about your background. You know, you, you've got a lot of experience in, in startups. Uh, your previous organization, uh, you know, started out as a startup, got acquired, and now you've you've moved on. You've been with Worldbook for about two and a half years right now. Yes, that's correct. So. You know, what's a startup guy doing? We're joining Worldbook. Um, you know, I think that's a great question. You know, being part of the startup, uh, how do you bring the innovation to enterprise? And I think that's a gap that many enterprises struggle with. Um, and I saw an opportunity to turn around uh, an iconic brand, combining a startup with an enterprise and seeing where we can go with that and transforming to a digital transformation that uh, Worldbook was looking to build upon the brand and evolve from. Um, you know, I looked at it as a unique opportunity because there's not too many companies that are, for one, that old or been around that long that really um, are in the position to capitalize on such a transformation and evolution for where they're at today. That's great. And I guess maybe I, I jumped a little early in uh, making the assumption that everybody knows who Worldbook is for... <laughs> For uh, most of us of a certain age, uh, World Book is something we we all grew up with. It's something we knew, uh, and and obviously, challenge is moving into that new digital first, going from a three dimensional sitting on the shelf product, right? To and th that's why we're really excited about having you on today because I think when we look at a lot of organizations that you mentioned, bringing innovation to the enterprise to the established, right? There are very few who have had as much success as an organization like World Book historically. Right. Mm -hmm. And is looking at the future saying, how are we going to remain in control, remain on top, you know, be viewed as that source of really high valuable content and information. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the transformation that you're trying to accomplish, you know, I guess as the role of CTO, right, the, the CTO role is kind of new. Right. I think we talked about that as well as like, uh, you know, it used to be always the CIO. There was a CIO in I think this transformation of going from IT to software product is one of those things that drives that chief technology officer. Mm -hmm. So as you're establishing yourself within the organization and trying to drive innovation, what do you think, you know, a lot of our listeners are looking at this in their own organizations. What do you think are some of the key elements that you're doing to create a fertile ground for innovation at Worldbook? I mean, I think the core of any innovation within a company like that is to truly 
take into account what you do today and how do you do it better. I mean, coming into an organization like that's been established as World Book, they're obviously doing things well to get this long longevity that they've had. And how do you build upon the foundation that they've set? But they've also, on the flip side, they've also become accustomed to their ways. Here's what we've done and what we've done in the past has been successful. Unfortunately, what the past what has worked in the past doesn't mean it's going to work in the future. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's kind of a cliche uh, statement, but every company needs to become a technology company, no matter what business you're in. And Worldbook's no different. Um, and trying to come in and lead with the software development to make things from our book processing more efficient to our digital products that we offer, schools, libraries, districts, states, um, more valuable. The content itself is only one piece to the dimension. The key really is how do you start to add value or tools around the content that traditionally are not in the education space. Right now, the education space is going through a major transformation and really trying to find itself, which is why you see a lot of publishing companies like ours um, and others that are in there struggling to how to transform and where it's going to head. There's no silver bullet in this industry. There's no, you know, this is the way, here's the path, here's where everything's heading because of how scrambled each institution, school, and district is. They don't correlate. There's no standard per se. Each state's different. Each district's different. Um, Each school's different. And so how do you come up with a solution that encompasses all of what they need and what they want? Because also what used to work 10 years ago for students is vastly different than what works today. Our generations are different. The phone and the iPads are vastly relatively new uh, tools that students are getting access to, especially um, you know, Chromebooks. And so that's really changing the fundamental piece um, of where we want to head and how we want to do it. Interesting. So it's a great question then. So seems like a lot of work, right? So what are some of the things that you think, you know, a successful CTO does, right, inside the business to actually elicit these types of changes or to be part of or maybe even the instigator of change? Yeah, I think first uh, CTO has come in and realized it's not just operations and risk mitigation anymore. And you have to learn how to be a business partner and align the technology platform strategy with where the business really wants to head. And that sometimes foresee before the business knows, you know, and where you want to go with that and try to anticipate as much change as possible. You know, I think the core really is getting your platform and your systems nimble enough so that you can pivot at any given moment because and in the industry, speed is one of your greatest advantages. The faster you can change, the faster that you can roll out changes and not disrupt your production, the better you will be and, and be able to adjust to where the future heads. Interesting. I always think like both football fans, right? And the Bears are clearly, in my assessment, they went through a big transformation and it doesn't look like it's going very well right now. Looks like we've got some setbacks. We made some big bets and uh, those bets aren't paying off too great. And I, I think about that when I think about some of these digital transformations, and I think about CTOs and I think about, you know, what is that window, right? Because I, I, I'm i looking at the GM pace thinking this might be your last year, right? This This could be the end of it, right? Like you were given an extra year kind of after the previous two and now it's not looking like you, we got three more years of rebuilding ahead of us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but I also think about that as like you're talking about some very serious change, right? 
and it's going to require a lot of leadership discipline, right? So when you go in, are you looking for easy wins? Are you looking to just, you know, set a platform, set an expectation or what, you know, because three years is a long time for a business to wait. And there's a situation I've talked to other customers or other people that I've worked with where, you know, you say, like, this is the right thing. They know it, but it's going to take three years and that won't survive. Is that something you're dealing with? Absolutely. I think it's a fine balance, um, you know, on how to manage that. I, I don't think there's any silver bullet that truly you can say, this is how you do it. And this holds tried and true through each company, but you have to have small wins. Otherwise, if you don't have small wins, you lose confidence. People that are non-technically or non don't have uh, the tech savviness as executive presidents, uh, they have operating incomes and financial numbers they have to meet no matter what is going on with the business. And so, yes, it's a fine balance that you truly have to navigate throughout the company. It's not just um, the executives, but you have to be get everybody on board for the small wins to show that this stuff is going to make a change, but then also setting the foundation for long-term goals as well. Hmm. And one of the things we talked about was that urgency, right? Creating urgency around, you know, there's some organizations that understand the existential threats that exist in the marketplace. And then, and I think this is the big challenge with, with organizations with that are established. There's some that do and some that clearly do not, mm -hmm. right? So, and somebody with your background understands, right? When you're in a startup, you're fighting for your life, fighting for a month, fighting for a day, right? Like, I, we just got to keep going. There's a lot of risk and it's just baked in. And there was a great article in, in Harvard Business Review yesterday about uh, innovation theater, right? There's a lot of organizations that talk about innovation and they, they have the perception that they're being innovative, but they're not really in essence being innovative and it's process over product is what they focus. The process is what has drive value for the business. The product is what drives value for the, for the customer, right? So in your experience, when, when you come to that situation where process is, you know, overwhelming product, new ideas, innovation, things like that, you know, is there things that you've done that you think have really kind of either gotten over, gotten around, gotten through? Yeah, and I think that's where you define that fine balance of, you know, bringing a startup to established culture, um, you know, and realizing that the main thing that matters and you'll be judged by is the outcome, the product. And at the end of the day, some of the processes were built and predate where technology really was more about risk mitigation than innovation. And sometimes you have to work your ways around the processes or in, and some of them scrap it. I mean, it, you have to really get that urgency of just getting the job done. And, you know, obviously there's consequences and things that and risks that come with that, but that's also a fine balance for each project. Um, for example, uh, if you want to move throughout the bureaucracy, you can't just say this is going to happen because of my title. That, that's great for a short term, but for the long term growth that you really want, you have to really start to influence the key players in the position. So learning who those key players are throughout your company and showing them that you truly have a vision of where you want to go with this. And there's a, mad, there's a means behind the madness of what you're trying to do. Um, you know, it's easy in a startup a lot of times because the processes aren't there. You know, you're just, like you said, fighting for the day to day. Hey, we've got to get this out. You know, we can 
we can iterate and fix it if we break it or if something happens. But at the end of the day, we have to get this out to make you know, next payroll or maybe ne- maybe next revenue numbers. Um, you know, and trying to how do you bring that urgency to an established company? And I think you can start small on some of the smaller projects that normally would go through the bureaucracy and the, the normal process and would take months. You know, we went from a company that launched every I'd say three to four times a year to now we're launching every two weeks because we have to be iterative. Now, that was a major disruption in our industry because not only do you have to tell your clients and your customers um, that these launches are coming because it's not like Facebook where they just push it out. Hey, it's new. You get to live and you just deal with it because you're not paying for the product. Unfortunately, you know, you are disrupting teachers and um, students during the schools. And so you have to formulate the major releases around the school year, but make the incremental ones during the school year, but then having uh, a communication channel that allows them to know the changes that are coming before they're coming. Hmm. And that's really, uh, you know, a challenge at times because you want to be as fast as you can and you start to preach about speed to market and changes and we can fix things and do that. But the same token, you have to be very conscious of you have customers out there that live and breathe this every day, built it into the curriculum, built it into everything they do. So disrupting them to some extent that, you know, that's a loss of revenue. If you really make it to where they're not provide, they're not seeing the value of the constant change as well. Hmm. Yeah, I think when you brought up the idea of starting small and things like that, your background with the, the previous organization having been acquired to a, a, a large organization, right? The, the one, the acquirer organization wasn't enormous, right? But I guess, is there, from your experience, having been through that from the acquisition side, what would you think is, you know, because I think I see that with a lot of our clients or a lot of people that I know where they're like, hey, we're going to, you know, either start a startup, an entirely uniquely formed organization to stay away from some of the safety nets, delays that occur. But like, I also, interesting from like your experience, boots on the ground experience of, as that occurred, and you hear stories about like, and then we got brought into the the Borg, right? Part of the collective, and like all the things that made us special were, you know, destroyed. And then people are surprising that surprised that it didn't work. From your background, your experience, and, and I don't know how it went there. What do you think is a more successful way to like, if a large organization wants to bring in a startup and say, look, this is something that we think is, you know going to give us an advantage. We have good market fit. We can take advantage of this. They've clearly built something we want. Is your experience to, to integrate them? Is your experience, and not just experience, but I guess your recommendation, right? Yeah. I mean, I, seeing this done in various different ways throughout uh, my time and my previous employer, I really believe you have to keep them separate um, because unfortunately there's going to be what I call energy pirates that will suck the energy out of the product just because either one, they feel that, you know, you're taking their job, you're redoing things differently, um, but, or they hold on to what they're comfortable with. And so you've got to get the team that is going to disrupt or trying the innovation in a separate team because you want them working outside the normal framework confines or restrictions that uh, are normally put in place for the teams. And so that they're thinking truly outside the box. I mean, it's one of these that either you 
are the carnivore that digests it and you, you know, you take over or somebody else is going to do it. Unfortunately, we're in a world that I believe that, you know, speed does matter and innovation is truly what makes you competitive. And if you don't innovate, somebody else will innovate. And it's only a matter of time before each industry feels this pain. I think some industries have, you know, obviously been disrupted way faster than others. Uh, in the publishing education space, I think it's still in the early innings of disruption because in ours, there's gatekeepers. It's a very hard job to sell to all the districts and schools and state institutions, um, you know, that normally are not the same barriers for a business to business type transaction. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, you know, people think of they're they're going to get, you know, uh, innovated out. They're going to get, you know, disrupted. But I do think like another case where I see that is uh, Uber Freight, right? Uber Freight, Uber is great in that it's a B2C, right? There's no barrier for them to like make that direct relationship. But now that they're getting into freight, they know that there are relationships there. There are people there that have to be part of the process. It can't be, we're just going to do this at scale and we're just going to send out a bunch of apps, right? There is, there's process. And like uh, people have said, and in my opinion is, that's why Uber Freight's here in Chicago now. They need those relationships, right? And I think it goes back to what we're saying is you have to truly take your customers into account of that process. You know, I think everything has an assembly line, all the way from requirements gathering to intel market intelligence gathering to software engineering to then what's your market rollout plan? You know, normally a lot of uh, SaaS providers just push things out with no disregard or no regard to the customers. And when you go to B2C, as we are in uh, the school space, you have to take that into consideration and then involve them in that process because they are paying you at some, you know, various different amounts, but they really have skin in the game as well, more so than your B2C, which is, you know, one to many type deal. Yeah. No, it's, it's really an interesting situation of, of disruption, right? Of like who's, because who knew taxis, right? If you're going to pick somebody like really sexy industry to go after, it probably wouldn't have been taxis. Uh, but, but that's one of the ones that were easier to. There's no barrier to entry, you know, and it's just you get right in. And you know, at the end of the day, you know, there's the establishment there had no moat, let's call it, that can protect uh, other companies from coming in. Yeah. And there might be an opposite of a moat that what looks like a barrier, right? The regulation of government, you know, you had to go buy a, a sticker. You had to get the little placard thing to be a taxi cab driver. And then, uh, you know. But I think that's a great story because they went out and did it first. And then we're like, okay, what happens next? Right. We'll settle now that we have an established business there and we have a market and we've shown you that these things are. How do we make this work for, you know, whatever fines or fees or things right. that we need to pay to get into compliance? And, and one of those lessons from their standpoint is you pick specific markets, right? So it's like start small. Right. Mm -hmm. Is that something from your experience as well of like when you're when you're starting to think about like, because, again, to boil the ocean, you're going to spend a lot of time dealing with a lot of things. So what's your market start as, you know, sm small of a niche as you possibly can. And, and that really is. And so we've taken that a few times. So we we are predominantly our niche is between K and 12. Um, and how do we pick a few of those grades? We have different products that align to each of those grades. And so let's start with that one grade. And you know, normally we started with the smaller K to two. How do we start to disrupt 
um, of what we want, what we believe is disruption in the industry and start changing the model to where it's not just content. You know, we are starting to really create tools around this content and, you know, starting to really think about different technologies like augmented reality or virtual reality and how they're going to play into the evolution of education. You know, I think we're still at the early innings. I don't think we're quite there yet just because of uh, the economies of scale are not there for hardware and different variants uh, frameworks. But I think, you know, we're just starting to get the tip in the next few years to where you're really going to see that start to leak into there. But how do you build that platform that's going to take advantage of, you know, what I would call the new wave, you know, of disruption? Interesting. Yeah, you mentioned Chromebooks before, right? It seems to be pretty predominant as the, the platform of choice for many education. Which wasn't always the case. I mean, I think, you know, if, if anybody in the industry, they thought iPads were going to be. It. Right. And it just, it came down to cost. You know, iPads at the time were eight, six hundred, six hundred, eight hundred dollars and Chromebooks, you know, 150. Well, let me see here. Well, what advantage do I get outside of an Apple product um, that I don't truly get with the Chromebook? Yeah. And, it is, you know, historically, Apple was always the education, right? The mm-hmm. Apple II, Apple IIe, right, was something I remember for second grade. Was, that was my first computer. <laughs> right, right. My first home computer was a PC Junior, which is still exists in my parents' home. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so if you ever want to come over and play Space Quest, <laughs> we can crank that bad boy up. Right through the Oregon Trail. That's right. <laughs> you know, I never played that. It was Everybody brings that up. I'm like, oh, don't turn around when you're in the river. I'm like, I have no idea what that means. That has no context for me. Zork, on the other hand, I'm totally on board with, right? You're in a clearing. Anyway, so enough video games. Those weren't even video games. Those were, you know, I'd be amazed if we showed our kids, like, what we had. They'd be like, what know, is this? Right, exactly. Like, I'm bored. Um, You're doing so uh, DOS command props. But I do, and I think that's, you know, like, watching the education space is so interesting, right? I've, I have kids, and they're in that space, and it's very interesting uh, the different modalities of learning that are now supported, right? Like uh, this product called IXL. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Mm-hmm. So it's like you keep playing a game and you're learning the whole time. And like one of my kids' job is to snap screenshot his results to his teacher, where it's like, okay, when you get to 85, you screenshot your results. I think this is that that is super exciting to me, right? As somebody who wasn't really the greatest student in the world, and like the ways that that people learn are so different, that results outcome is so interesting to me. So like the engagement and like getting information and learning to these different generations and the different modalities that are supported, it sounds like that's a big part of where you're going where Worldbook is going. Yes, absolutely. And I think gamification on all different levels is one of the next waves that are, if not already here, um, that's truly transforming education. Um, because, you know, the the model that has worked for so long of just repeat, you know, and, or how do you teach to everybody, repeat it, take a test, memorization. You're not really learning per se. You're just learning how to memorize. And, you know, how do you, how do you enhance that competency outcome? You know, that where you really know that you have achieved that test, but still make it fun because each student is different. So you got to find that sweet spot. Not every kid in the class is going to have that same sweet spot. So there's lots of different technologies that are coming to the classroom, like adaptive learning and gamification. And I think a combination of uh, those with a few others that are really going to make this an interesting space that is ripe for disruption because uh, there is no answer yet that 
works across all spectrums. Somebody in Arkansas is vastly different than a student in California. They're going to have just different needs or different curriculum standards. But, you know, I think technology can really bridge the gap to try to find that sweet spot for each student and really make it individual learning experience so that you really preach to the students as opposed to a generalization. Now, I don't see education or uh, technology surpassing or supplementing or um, replacing the teacher. I think it's more of an, an aid, you know, so that the teacher can get insight into how each student is at real time on each subject and each thing and immediate feedback and be able to hopefully change the platform and to adapt to that student's ability or inability to learn that subject. I, I think that my wife is a teacher. She teaches second grade. And I think that's that's uh, the other the concept that I see there is you know, it's not supplanting. But I do see the possibility of like it increases the self-learning, right? Where it's like creating joy around learning. I think we both went to Catholic grade school, right? Some of the learning wasn't joyful, right? <laughs> Some of it was a little force fed, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not, I never, sister never used the paddle, right? <laughs> she showed it to me a couple times, right? But it never got implemented. It was enough to see it. Mm -hmm. But my point though is like, you, you think about that uh, joy around learning, lifelong learning, self-learners, autodidactics, and how much that is a critical component for like being successful. It's, it's interesting to me how few college graduates actually read a book after they graduate, right? The numbers are staggering, right? Absolutely staggering. So that, that idea of like creating joy around learning and creating environments where somebody can learn, uh, you know, coupled with self-learning and moving to that next level, not really, like you said, supplanting the teacher. But I, I do wonder, right? Like, you know, you have been in the education game, technology for a long time. Are colleges relevant in the next decade? I think you're going to see a lot of smaller schools close down. Um, I think there has been a transition or is a transition for specialty schools and different things. I, I think they need to either transform and disrupt themselves in different ways because I see the lot of things you're talking about where people don't realize you don't just stop learning when you get out of college. Like that's just the beginning. You just laid the foundation for what you're trying to build. And, you know, it's a life learning process. I mean, you should be learning, you know, until the day, frankly, you die, um, you know, because the world is changing at fast rates that we've ever seen. Things that used to take 100 years now take a year or three years. And it's just, it's only going to continue to, the speed's only going to increase as time goes on and technology gets better and, you know, solves more complex problems that traditionally we thought were incomplete or NP problems. They just weren't solvable, you know, for our current understanding of how the world, universe, and things work. The idea of college is becoming irrelevant, right? There's the part where it's like that kind of excites me to a certain degree of like, I don't want to have to pay for college for my kids, right? That's a there's no joy there, right? Uh, but the other point is, it is a big industry. I mean, uh, secondary education, graduate schools, they're a great source of, of revenue and talent for this country. Many people come to this country for that very reason. And that's what's given us a lot of success over the, you know, the prevailing decades of like the best of other countries always came here because of our education system. Is it possible that we lose that edge because it is so democratized? I don't know if we're going to lose the edge. I, I personally believe you're going to see the 
the more progressive thinking ones change. You know, they're, they're going to realize of how the world needs to change and how they need to fit into it as well. And so you're going to see the ones that truly get it. They will change the way they teach and the way they go about. Um, you know, I think the traditional colleges we know it is dying off, you know, and I think that's going to have it slowed. I mean, it's not going to be, you know, today, tomorrow, five years, but I think over time, they're going to have to change with the environment that's going with it. And, you know, there's going to be some that don't change. They just, you know, hold on and this is what we do and this is what we think. But being in the industry, um, you know, I don't know that college is truly preparing every student for what the world holds. And so then they, it, it, in the 70s or 80s, used to say, hey, I got a college degree. I automatically get a job, you know, and I get a job with what I want to do. And like you said, that that's been democratized, commoditized, you know, everybody's getting a college degree. And so now it's truly, how do you learn the right skill sets to prepare yourself for whatever industry you're going in? Yeah, I, I, it is very interesting. You touch on the other subject around everybody's getting a college degree. I was uh, having a conversation with a CIO of a, a kind of a, a niche restaurant for Chicago. And one of the things, because there's a talent gap, uh, even at the... <laughs> the frontline food service provider. This is like a huge issue for that environment of there. I think it's Chipotle is now, if you stay with Chipotle for after 120 days of being employed there, they'll pay for a college degree, right? Where they know they this kind of longevity is critical for their success and having those types of people actually participate, even at that like lowest level, right? Something that you would normally get paid when we were kids. $4 an hour, mm-hmm. right? And treated like a, a mule, right? And like we, we got good at being mules. And, and they're trying to find perks that today attract the talent. And yeah. so, you know, they understand the importance of education and they want to progress and, you know, feel like, you know, it's more of a loyalty play, I think, as well, but also, you know, stimulate the kids and say, hey, this is a difference that we are trying to have over other companies like ours so that we can attract you know, more of that higher end for that market. And I think it's so different in IT or what we do in different world uh, companies that you have to add those additional perks to keep top talent in you in your company, because I think or last I read that at least for technology, the Average is like two and a half years, you know, mm-hmm. at a company. I mean, and so how do you prolong that or at least get to two and a half years? Right. I mean, you know, that's right. really what you're fighting for nowadays, at least for a younger generation, is how do you at least get to two and a half years so that you get the productivity out of the, the workers? It's interesting. There's a very large, very successful software company, maybe runs with Frugal, and like their average employee lifetime is less than 14 months, right? Like, I'm sure they've got a plan. I'm sure that's part of the plan. I'm sure that's not an accident. But it's like, would that work for you? Right? Would that work for me? That, that kid, I mean, I, I don't have uh, thick enough armor to take those many kinks or uh, holes in the armor to say, yes, we can roll with the punches. If we only get 14 months out of you, that's a win. Um, but I think that they have enough engineers to absorb uh, the constant. And I'm sure it's a, a machine. Yeah. as well. You know, yeah. they've got things down to a science that, you know, they also know that the others will stay longer and that will overcome the shortcomings there. Yeah. When you're making almost a million dollars in profit on every employee, you can do those kinds yeah. of things. <laughs> I don't think either one of our organizations are quite a few different constraints. For yeah. I, I wish our, our, you know, net margin was there, but mm-hmm. it's not. So when you, you bring up good point is that's a big part of innovation is the people 
I mean, I think truly people are what's going to drive innovation and the right people. It's not just people in general. You know, you need the right people with the right mindset that want to make the processes more efficient, want to be a part of that innovation, you know, and strive for innovation. It's not for everybody. I don't think you can have every employee, you know, okay, everybody's going to innovate. I mean, as much as you would love to have that, that's just not practical. And there's certain people that, you know, you're A players, and I don't know what the multipliers are, but they're 10 to 20 times, you know, more productive, but you're going to get much more innovation out of them and having them in the right places at the right time. Yeah. And I think you touch on a great subject around like, hiring the right people for the right role, right? Like, you know, there's the part of your business that you make money on. You don't really want to, the innovators in there. Like, that's how you make money. Like you talked about, like, you know, having the, the smaller group that's doing the innovation, right? Uh, I used to, I, this, this came apparent to me when we're onboarding new clients or we're doing things. I use the term, there's, there's Marines and then there's the Army, right? The Marines are, they like to invade. Right. The army like to get things very accurate. Right. Mm-hmm. So like when you think about like the personality types, if you put somebody who doesn't enjoy that kind of chaos in that situation, they won't be very productive. Correct. Right. And so is that like when you look at your team, it's like, you know, having everybody do innovation. Not everybody wants to do innovation. They don't want to do big eye innovation. Right. Yeah, and we go through kind of a cycle. I mean, we, we rotate and make sure cross train and put people on different projects to find out where they really want to be. Some people come in, oh, I want to innovate, innovate, and then all of a sudden you throw them into chaos because that's what innovation usually is. And it's like, wait a minute, I'm not ready or this isn't for me. I need much more structure, much more, like you said, keeping the army, the machine running so that, you know, I, I don't mind working on this part instead of this. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's, unfortunately, we create this, perception that everybody should want to be an innovator. And it's like, you should want to innovate. It's like, what if I just want to make it work right? It's like, there's, there's, as a guy who I think tends a little bit more to the unstructured, there's nothing I love more than somebody who's really great at spreadsheets. Absolutely. And you need that. I mean, you absolutely need that to fill what gaps, first off, identifying your gaps and then having somebody fill that because that's still part of the business. Right. You know, and and I think we're a lot alike and, you know, I thrive in the chaos in those sense or controlled chaos. I like to, if you ever seen the movie Backdraft, there's this great scene where uh, they're trying to figure out, you remember the movie Backdraft? And so there's a scene where they're trying to figure out who's starting all these fires, Right. And the the lunatic, uh, pyromaniac, he's like, who loves fires but doesn't want to let it free? And it's like, firemen, right? And I think for you to be successful in this environment, you've got to enjoy, or you've got to be capable in chaos, but do not love chaos, Absolutely. right? You want to bring structure to chaos. Just enough. Just, and then hand it off to somebody else and go find some more chaos, yep. right? But that's otherwise what I see is people who just love the chaos. They never get traction. It never goes anywhere. They just keep breaking the machine over and over again. Well, that goes back to our conversation earlier of how do you keep within the confines and what's your window? You know, so if you keep doing that and you don't show anything that's coming out of that, you're not going to be in that position for long. I mean, there's going to be a time where the patients of the company or the executives or stakeholders run out and they say, "Okay, we've done this for a year, two or three years and nothing has come out of this except I see my budget or costs skyrocketing and I'm getting zero ROI for the business not moving forward. Awesome. 
And I think that's always, you know, an important part of innovating is tying it back to the core business and showing that, you know, doing this will result in X or Y. Now, those are projections, but you still always have to tie it down to the bottom line. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's really something that's easy to get lost in innovation. You know, I love to be in a lab and I love to experiment and hypothesize and test and prove right, prove wrong uh, and move forward. But at the end of the day, if you don't have some type of measurement, data things or, um KPIs in place to show that this is what's going to result in that, you're not going to be able to innovate for long. I mean, it goes back to a discussion you had earlier about, you know, they like to talk about it. You know, we want to talk about innovation, but really doing it is difficult because there is no formula to say for every business, this is how you always bring it back to the the, the core business. And I guess, uh, doesn't that, isn't that really the chicken and the egg of innovation, a little bit of like, when people think that ROI, right, on innovation, not understanding the, you know, the terms that get thrown out are that fail fast, right? But fail you also brought forward, and, and <laughs> but the, you brought up a great point. Is something I always think that they miss when they say that because that's like when people say agile, we don't have to plan anymore, right? And it's like, okay, so we didn't mean have no rigor or discipline. And when I think about the fail fast, it's. I hate the phrase because it gets thrown around way too much, but I also think it should be changed to learn fast, which means keep your experiments small, right? Find the the things you just shouldn't do anymore, where it's like, because you brought it up of like the lab component. Where is the scientific approach to this, right? Because I don't think many people think like, okay, so let's come up with a hypothesis and let's go test it as quickly as possible, not to fail, Right. But to learn. Mm-hmm. Right. And and then that celebration of fail fast, I just, you know, it's like it, it just smells of like lack of discipline. Right. <laughs> so it's like, no, we should learn fast. So how do we learn fast? Keep our experiments small and make sure that they're very focused on what we're trying to drive to as a business outcome. And, and that's, a, you know, I think you touched on the point, too, is, you know, agile is thrown around for that. Um, to where, you know, it is just chaos, but it's not. I mean, every, every department has some type of cadence. And so when you're innovating, the, to keep to that cadence or some form of that is critical because you don't want to spend months and months on doing these type of innovations that you think are going to be. And you could have learned in two weeks from the get-go and save yourself the headache instead of learning, having some type of milestones at each point and saying, okay, if we hit this milestone and we've done X, Great, we can continue on. If we've done Y, we got to rethink our hypothesis. Our hypothesis, like this, is not where we want to head, and going down this path will not lead to the results that we're looking for. Uh, I obviously, I agree one hundred percent. Is there just uh, kind of wrapping up? I want to like ask: Is there a book that you recently read? I haven't mentioned any books, and I don't get through a podcast without mentioning a book. So I'm going to put it on you. Is there a book that you think is somebody who's like wants to get involved in this, wants to participate in that you think was really helpful in developing your 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 ideas and leadership around it? Yeah, I know it's kind of a popular one, but uh, for people that haven't read, it's the zero to one. It really is wow. you know, one of my favorite books because I've always felt the hardest part is going from zero to one. If you're on a hundred point scale, everybody looks for a hundred and it's, oh, I got my goal and I know what I want to do. And here's the thing, but just getting started, you know, just doing something. I mean, I think one of the bigger technologies that's come out that, you know, is going to touch everybody's AI machine learning. You know, everybody thinks it can solve every problem in the world already today. The the publicity behind it is, you know, this is just going to replace humankind. Right. Maybe it does. I don't know. Skynet yeah. may come around, but at the end of the day, 
for businesses like Worldbook, it's how do we just get started? Yeah. You know, how do we just do something to prove that, yes, this is relevant to what we're trying to do today? You know, we have that idea, but, you know, just because just getting started gives you a place to build upon. And so then you can pivot from there and say, okay, well, maybe this isn't, maybe we don't have the talent. Maybe we bring in somebody that has specialties to do this, but just getting that first step, I think is critical. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I want to say thanks for coming on today. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I'm sure we could keep this going for another seven hours. Maybe we get some beers involved, but uh, I did want to say thanks for coming on and, and sharing your experience the education space touches us all, right? Technology touches the education space more now than ever. And I think it's totally relevant. And I think we've, we've got some really great experience. You know, your background's amazing and everything that you've done. So uh, we wish you nothing but continued success. Uh, we'll check in from time to time and find out how things are going. Thank you, Patrick. It's been a privilege to be on. Awesome. So we also wanted to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast or find us on iTunes, uh, Spotify, or, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.